Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Daniel. We're in week two. Uh, hopefully, you guys have picked up the book Brave by Faith by Alistair Begg and have plugged into a life group. I know ours this past week had a, a great discussion. We actually started kind of a couple of weeks ago looking at the introduction and then last week, uh, chapter one. And... Um, uh, it's, it'll make your head spin, so uh, it's good that you're here this morning uh, because the way I, I kind of encourage our group is to think about reading the chapter ahead of the sermon on Sunday and then going ahead and reading the book and doing the, the study guide uh, in preparation for life group during the week. That way there we all come together and instead of sharing pooled ignorance, we'll be able to share our insights with one another as we have engaged God in his word in this wonderful little book. So today we, we come to chapter two and uh, earlier this week I, I thought it was interesting because uh, Trevor chose a passage of scripture to read this morning that has a word in it that you don't often use in a worship service on Sunday morning. And I, for my uh, opening, uh, am using the very same word. So I'd like to share something with you. Some of you um, who are as old as I am can uh, appreciate this. Same old song. Just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away. And all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. All right, you guys know the name of the song by now. Anybody tell me the name of the group? Kansas. It's my favorite group, Kansas. Uh, saw them a couple years ago at the Lancaster, Lancaster Festival uh, with uh, Paul and Denise Johnson and my wife. Uh, had a great time. But Carrie Livgren, who wrote the song, a founding member of the group, uh, was for years on a spiritual pilgrimage. Uh, he dabbled in just about everything. And uh, this song appeared uh, on uh, the 1977 album. Anybody know this one? Point of No Return. And um, it wasn't long after that that Carrie came to faith in Christ. And it was just, it's just so interesting to kind of look back at, at his lyrics. Uh, and that's one of the things that I loved about the group was just that their lyrics were so rich. Of course, I loved the music. Um, but you, there was something I could relate to in his search. And then, of course, he, he comes to faith in Christ. Dave Hope, one of the, of the other players on the, uh, on the band, in the band, also became a believer a little bit later when Steve Walsh left the band. Then they hired John Alofante, who was also a believer. It was just really cool for me. And so I, I kind of keep tabs of all my former rock stars that have since come to faith in Christ. It's an encouragement to me personally. So, but... Um, you know, his logic really is inescapable. If there is no God, then we are nothing but dust in the wind. We're, we're a cosmic aberration that's here today and gone tomorrow. And what is more, all we do 
and acquire and attain is nothing but dust in the wind. Daniel chapter 2 verse 35 really echoes this sentiment. Speaking of the kingdoms of the world, Daniel says that they will be broken in pieces and become like chaff. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. You might say that they were dust in the wind. Now, as I was uh, preparing for this message, um, I, I really wrestled because it's such a good, good chapter. And there are 49 verses in this chapter. So I thought, how in the world am I going to cover 49 verses in the time allotted to me? So I did some math, and I, I, I figured if I limited myself to two minutes a verse, we should be out of here by 1125. <laughs> now, after you know the last couple of weeks, some of you are probably thinking, that could really happen. Um, but uh, seriously, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I'm going to do my best to move us along uh, so that no one faints from hunger. Um, this morning's uh, message, this morning's big idea is simply this. God is in control, and his kingdom has no rivals. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning and for your word to us. Again, we thank you for your servant, Daniel, and how you worked in his life um, and worked through his life um, to affect the course of history, to affect our very lives here today. The Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher and our guide. Give me the words, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, last week, I forgot to mention a couple of interesting, interesting things about the book of Daniel um, that I'd like to share with you this morning. Um, the first is, is that chapters 1 and chapters 8 through 12 were written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 were written in Aramaic. And this has puzzled scholars for, for many years, and there's really no consensus on it. I think um, it's with a purpose, however. I don't have time to get into all of that, but I think Daniel did it this way for a reason. But there's another interesting thing about chapters 2 to 7 that I did not know. And once I saw it, I go, oh, that is so cool. Uh, and that is, is that these chapters have a, a chiastic structure to them. Um, it's a, it's a, a form of parallelism, but it's kind of a unique form of parallelism. It's because it's when you take a, it, it's a rhetorical and literary device that's, that's used to, to help people as they're reading along. And it, it takes a word or it takes an idea and it states it, but then it states it again in reverse order. Sometimes it's stated the same way, sometimes it's stated in a different way, but it's a device that really helps you uh, understand and I think it, it, uh, grasp more deeply the concepts that are being taught. So I thought I would show you what it looks like visually, uh, and then you can check it out in your own Bibles. Um, you'll notice chapter 2 is a dream about four earthly kingdoms and God's eternal kingdom. Then chapter 3 is a story about God's delivering faithful Jews from certain death. Chapter 4 
is a story about a prideful king is humbled. And then you have the reverse order that comes into play. So the very next chapter repeats the ideas or concepts of chapter four. It's a story about a prideful king who is humbled. And then in chapter six, parallels chapter three, a story about God delivering a faithful Jew from certain death. And then chapter seven parallels chapter two with a vision about four earthly kingdoms and God's eternal kingdom. So if in the process of reading through these chapters, you feel like you've read this before or heard this before, chances are it's because you had, at least in some way in chapters two, three, and four. So um, uh, no charge for that. I just thought that was cool to share it with you. Um, my outline this morning is actually going to flow right out of the text. So rather than just giving you my outline up front and, and hopefully you following along, we're just going to let it unfold as we move along the storyline. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to chapter 2 of Daniel. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. And the first thing we're going to talk about here is the king's dreams. The king's dreams. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Now this is quite interesting that uh, we have the king, uh, Nebi K. Nezer, um, which, by the way, thanks for that post. It was you that put the thing on <laughs> Um, I think you were right. I said, there's no way you can look at Daniel without thinking veggie tales, you know, um, and King Nebuchadnezzar. But, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king, a great king. And despite his power, despite his prestige, he was troubled in spirit to the point where he couldn't sleep, suffered from insomnia. And why is that? Well, when you read the text, you become keenly aware it's because God had sent him divinely appointed nightmares. He had these dreams that kept him up at night, and he couldn't understand them, but he knew enough that uh, it wasn't good. And that's why he couldn't sleep. It troubled him. It bothered him. Somehow he knew it had something to do with him and his kingdom, but he didn't know exactly what. So he called all of these magicians and enchanters and wise men, and they all came in, and they asked the king to tell them his dream, and then they will interpret it for him. The king had a different idea, and this is where we see the king's unreasonable demand. Verse 5 says, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. 
But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. So we have a slight disagreement here between the king and uh, these wise men, uh, who at this point in time are not very wise. The wise men wanted the king to tell them the dream so they could interpret it for him. The king, on the other hand, wanted them to tell him what he had dreamed and then to tell him the interpretation. So why do you suppose that is? See, the king wasn't a dummy. He, he knew that if he had told them the dream, they could have come up with anything as an interpretation. And how would the king know if it was the right interpretation or not? So the king devised the foolproof way of knowing if their interpretation was correct. And that is that they would tell him what he dreamed. If you know that, oh, then you just might know the interpretation. So listen to what the king says in verse 8. Then the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. See, the only way the king could trust their interpretation is if they also told him the dream. And since they could not, the king accuses them of stalling for time. He had made it clear what he wanted them to do, and they continued to want him to tell them the dream in the hopes that I think that maybe in the passage of time, the king would uh, forget about, uh, you know, executing them, that he'd have a change of heart of sorts. So in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And because of this, the king was, in, was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The king is very put out. He doesn't like the stalling tactics. He doesn't like the fact that uh, they were conspiring together to, to weasel their way out of this, to perhaps tell the king maybe what he wanted to hear. So the Chaldeans respond in a way that, again, not so wise. It's as if they said, Oh, king, what you're asking is unreasonable. This, this, this is not a reasonable request that you're making. In fact, it's impossible. There isn't a man alive who can do what you ask. Only the gods can do that, and, and they don't live here on the earth. So you're out of luck. And we know that the king became furious 
so that he ordered that not just these men would die, but all the wise men. He just said, you guys are a bunch of good-for-nothings, and I'm going to get rid of you all. And so they signed their own death warrant with their statement, but not only theirs, but for all the wise men, including Daniel and his friends. So now we come to Daniel's response to all of this. Apparently he wasn't a part of this group of wise men that had come in to see the king. Verse 13. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, you have to remember, Daniel was part of the group that Arioch was sent to kill. Arioch's there to kill Daniel and his friends. And apparently, he found him along with his companions. But notice, Daniel doesn't respond in fear. He, he doesn't run and hide. He doesn't beg and plead for his life. Rather, he responds with prudence. In, in, in discretion. And he asks Arioch, why is this thing so urgent? I, I almost hear within that is, okay, I, I understand what you're sent to do, but does it have to happen right now? I mean, why is it so urgent? Why is, you know? and, and so he engages Arioch in conversation, which is not something you would expect, you know, the executioner to do when he shows up at your door to sit down and have this nice long talk. You, you figure he's come for one purpose and it's going to happen quickly. After all, he's got other wise men he has to go and kill. But notice what happens here. Um, Arioch engages him in conversation and explains everything to him. So he, he basically gives him the backstory. You almost get a sense in which maybe he feels a little sympathy for Daniel. Um, maybe he doesn't agree with what the king is, is saying, and, and here it is. And, and the other thing that, that is fascinating here is we know that Daniel was allowed to go to the king. So Arioch allowed him to go to the king to make his request, to ask for a stay of execution, and that he might return at another time and interpret the king's dream for him. Now, this is fascinating because the king was already put out because he thought the wise men were stalling for time. And now Daniel is coming and saying, hey, would you give me some time? Uh, I need some time here. Um, and then I'll, I'll come back and I'll tell you your dream and I'll interpret it for you. And this is risky. This is risky. Um, this... This really highlights Daniel's faith and his courage because remember, up to this point, God had not revealed to him the dream or the interpretation. But he seems dead sure that he's going to be able to come back with a knowledge of the dream and its interpretation. 
So verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. See, lesser men would have used this time to plan their escape. You know, once the king said, all right, I'll give you some time. Now, come up, take a deep breath, figure out how to get out of Babylon. But that's not, again, what Daniel does. And Daniel does something that we probably don't do nearly as often as we should. He seeks out his friends so that together they might seek God. Seek him in prayer and find mercy from him. And it was after this that God revealed to Daniel the king's dream and its interpretation in a vision. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter." I want to re respond to crises like Daniel did. Don't you? Where prayer is the first recourse and not the last. Um, if, you know, if, if I'm to be honest, you know, a lot of times um, prayer is the last recourse. I engage my intellect, my experiences. I try to figure things out and solve problems and, and issues. And uh, then when it gets too tough and I realize I can't do it, then I go to God in prayer. And it ought not be that way. It ought to be our first response. And Daniel understood this. He, he knew this is too difficult for me. I can't do this. I need God to show me, and he does. And, and, and then also to see how he responded after God answered his prayer, that he responds in thanks and praise. This is, he, he gives God thanks and praise for answered prayer. And, and I think, too, that I need to be better at giving thanks for the good that I can see as well as the good I have yet to see. You see, see, God is always at work. He's always doing, even though I can't see what he's doing, God is at work for my good, for his glory. So I can give him thanks and praise even for that, even when I can't see it. And here, Daniel, it's just a natural thing for him to give thanks and praise to God. So therefore, Daniel went 
in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So here we see Daniel goes to Arioch and he says, I'm ready. I'm ready to tell the king his dream and its interpretation. And I, I, I just find it fascinating to see how Arioch responds here. I mean, he, he, he just, he just, he wants to take the credit for himself. You, you see that right there? And he, he, he says, <coughs> verse uh, 25, I have found from among the exiles from Judah, um, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. No, you didn't. <laughs> But he wants to take the credit for it. So the king then declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So here is the king. And he basically says, Daniel, okay, can you tell me my dream? Can you tell me the interpretation of the dream? And Daniel says, uh, nope. That's a dangerous way to begin. Because doesn't he starts out, I mean, a whole sentence here. No one can tell you. No one can tell you this. But there is a God in heaven. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad the king listened long enough to get to that point. But, but again, notice the difference in uh, the contrast between Daniel and, and Arioch. Daniel here responds with great humility, doesn't he? King, I, I can't give you the answer. Now, he could have, right? God had revealed it to him. So he knew the dream, and he knew the interpretation. So he could have just told him, yes. I, he, could have, he could have done an Arioch. Yes, king, I can do this. But he doesn't. He's honest. He admits what is true. I can't do it. But there's a God in heaven who can. Daniel then explains, Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So we come now to Daniel's revelation of the dream. 
and its interpretation. And he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Hmm. Me? I'm the head I'm the, I'm, I like being the head. I like gold, too. Daniel, I like this. So far, so good, right? Daniel continues, though, in verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so that the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall it be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain 
and its interpretation sure. See, Daniel wasn't telling the king what he wanted to hear, although the first part sounded pretty good. Nor did he tell him what he thought or what he felt. He wasn't playing a trick. He wasn't giving him an educated guess. It was divine revelation. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. In other words, Daniel is saying, O king, you can take this to the bank. You can be absolutely sure this is a certainty. This will happen. So what's it all mean? <laughs> well, most evangelical scholars uh, agree that the various parts of this statue represent four kingdoms. And the kingdoms have been traditionally understood to be Babylon because uh, the king is the head of gold. He's the king of the Babylonian empire. And the kingdom that followed him was the Medo-Persian empire which was then followed by the Greek Empire, which in turn was followed by the Roman Empire. Now you can read more about this in Brave by Faith or other resources. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. Um, but what is really the focal point here, it's not these four kingdoms, it's the stone. So don't miss that. It's, it's the stone so what, what is that all? Who or what is the stone that will break in pieces not only these four kingdoms, but all the kingdoms of the world? Well, a good principle of interpretation is allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay? This is where your cross-references will come in handy. This is where other resources, a good Bible dictionary might come in handy. You start to look at other passages of Scripture and see, is there any link, any connection? Do other biblical writers make commentary on the text that you're studying? And it just so happens that there's a lot in the New Testament that indicates that this stone that Daniel is talking about is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. He is the chief cornerstone. And there's so many texts that we could go to, but he is the rock. You know, he, that's what he told Peter and his disciples. After Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this truth to you, but your fa my father in heaven, he's the one who told you, and upon this rock, upon the rock of this, your confession, this great truth, I will build my church. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation to which all the other stones are fitted on top. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 20, the stone that the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You see how, how it's, it's as if Jesus is actually looking back to Daniel chapter 2 and other passages, and he's giving us some commentary. He's the cornerstone. He's the stone that's going to break in pieces all these kingdoms. And anyone 
anyone who, who fails to bow their knee to King Jesus, and he will scatter them like dust. So again, we asked, what is the point of all of this? Well, it's certainly not so that um, we can, 2,600 years later, um, harangue and argue about who the kingdoms are, how many toes were on his feet, and what is the significance of the toes, and, um, you know, don't, don't waste your time with that kind of stuff. Um, there's no, no need to speculate this was given for a reason, and we need to find out. You know, Alistair Begg, I love, you know, he, he has said this. He says, you know, uh, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. And somebody else said once, and I, I think it was Chuck Swindoll, he says that, uh, um, uh, how does the quotation go? That if the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's the, what's the point here? What's, what's really happening here? Well, the point is simply this, that there will come a kingdom one day that will end all kingdoms. That will get rid of them all. And this kingdom will never be destroyed. And it will last forever. This is the eternal kingdom of God that would be ushered in by the Messiah, that was ushered in by Jesus at his first advent and will be fulfilled and bring, bring, will culminate in his second coming when it is completely fulfilled. You see, this, this message was as much for God's people as it was for the king. You know, as you read the story, you're thinking, well, you know, Daniel's interpreting the dream for the king, Right? Uh, that's true. But remember, Daniel wrote this. Here we are 2,600 years later, and we're reading the same story. Don't you think the Jews in exile knew this story? Don't you think the Jews later would read the story, would tell it to their children? See, this message was as much for them as it was for the king because they, too, needed to be reminded, even in exile, that God is in control. And his kingdom has no rivals. He will one day rescue and redeem his people. Daniel wants the people of God to understand this great truth. It doesn't matter how great Nebuchadnezzar is. It doesn't matter that you're in exile. It doesn't matter that it looks like your life is about to be cut short. God is on the throne. And nothing is going to happen apart from his will. And if you believe that God knows all things and that he loves you and is in control of all things, then you can say, you know what, God, whatever it takes for your glory, for my good, use me, even if it means my death. Glorify your name. We too need to be reminded of this that no matter how bleak things may seem, God is in control. Nothing comes into our life without it first filtering through God's hands. Nothing takes God by surprise. God doesn't wake up and, oh, I didn't know that was happening. He is working out all things according to the counsel of his will,
No purpose of his can be thwarted. And what does Paul say in Romans? All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. God is in control. Lastly, we see the king acknowledges Daniel's God and promotes Daniel. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So upon hearing these words from Daniel, this great and powerful king falls on his face before Daniel. Why? Because Daniel got it right. Daniel was able to tell him what his dream was. Therefore, he knows the interpretation is true. Now, some of your translations may say that the king fell uh, on his face and worshiped Daniel. Um, I don't think that's a, a, an accurate translation. I, th I think the idea of homage and, and honor is a better uh, rendering here. Uh, the, the king clearly makes a distinction between Daniel and his God, right? So you see that. And on top of that, uh, Daniel doesn't object. From what we know of Daniel, if, if the king was really worshiping Daniel, Daniel would have said, no, don't do that. Stop. After all, we know Peter did that. We know that the angels have done that. Daniel certainly would have done that too. I think, I think the king was simply honoring Daniel and acknowledging that his God is the God of gods. And the king of kings and the Lord of, of kings and the revealer of mysteries. And then Daniel was, uh, was given great honor and great gifts. And he made him ruler over Babylon, which was a province within the empire. Uh, and he made him ruler over all the wise men in the king's court. And as I mentioned last week, we again see that Daniel is a type of Christ. He served God faithfully in a strange and distant land. And so too did Jesus. Daniel prayed and interceded for his friends and all those who were far from God. Jesus did the same for us. And he continues to do that today in heaven. And like these Babylonian wise men, we too were once far from God and under a sentence of death. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved us with an everlasting love and made us alive together with Christ because of what he did for us at the cross. See, Jesus came from heaven to earth 
and lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. He paid the penalty we should have paid for our rebellion, for our treason against God. And then God raised him from the dead three days later, breaking the power of sin and death and promising that all who would repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in him, that they would not only be forgiven of their sins, but they would be brought into God's family and be a part of his eternal kingdom. Man was made from the dust of the earth. And to dust he will return. But he is not a cosmic aberration. You are not a cosmic aberration. You are the pinnacle of of God's creation. You are the high point. You were made in his image. You are the summit of his handiwork and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So how do you need to respond to God's word this morning? If you're not yet a Christ follower, I can think of nothing better than for you to bend your knee to King Jesus today. When you stop to think about all that he has done for you and ultimately giving his life upon the cross, why wouldn't you surrender your life to him? Just admit to him what he already knows, that you're a sinner in need of a savior and that you want him to become your Lord and savior. And he will come in and he will take your sins and he will cast them as far as the east is from the west. Or or if I want to be accurate, the east is from the west. That's a beautiful thing about being a a believer is that God takes all of our junk, all of our failures, all of our sin, and he washes it away by his blood so that we can have a new start. If, If Christ has saved you from your sins, then, you know, some of the applications that I took away from this is number one, first and foremost, give him thanks and praise. I mean, it it ought to just flow and fall right from your lips every day, thanking him that you are in Christ, thanking him for what he has done for you. And by God's grace, live obedient lives. Live courageous lives. Live with wisdom and prudence and continue to trust him no matter what. Chances are right now, no one's trying to kill you. Not yet. It may happen. But you know what? Um, We all face difficulties. We all face trials. Like Daniel and his friends, um, we will find ourselves sometimes powerless to do anything about our circumstances and our situation. And it's at those times that we need to to to, to come to God, to come to Jesus and to say, Lord, I need you. It might be that you're facing a a health issue. It might be a financial problem. It might be a relational conflict. It might be that you're just battling with some sort of besetting sin. Go to him. Trust him. Yield yourself to him. I like, and I'm going to close with this, quotation from David Jeremiah, Dr. David Jeremiah in uh, Agents of Babylon. He said simply this. You may not know what the future holds, 
but you know who holds the future. And since the whole world is in God's hands, your world is in God's hands. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for your word to us. And Lord, I just ask that you would do a deep work in in each of our hearts and minds that, Lord, where we are struggling, where we are in desperate need of you, that we would come to you in prayer and that, that we would find you. And Lord, we know that you delight in revealing yourself to your people, and I ask that you would do that, that you would show yourself strong and mighty on our behalf. Thank you for these encouraging words from chapter two. And Lord, I pray that you would use us for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.